We've been in a series called The Emmaus Road. I have too much stuff up here. I keep my phone up here so I can see what time it is so I don't go too long. That's for your all's benefit. But we've been in this series called The Emmaus Road, and what we've been looking at is finding Christ in the Old Testament. And not just finding Christ, but finding the plan of redemption because it's all throughout. And a lot of times we read it because of the way we've been taught. We go to the Old Testament in simply a moralistic reading. We go find some little nugget in there that just speaks to our hearts. And it's the David and Goliath. Who's your Goliath? You can overcome it. And there's nothing wrong with that at a surface level. That's great. But we've got to dig deeper. We've got to go farther. We've got to pick up on all the nuances. It gives you an appreciation. And when you understand that, it'll give you a love for Israel. Because of what they did, what they went through. A lot of what they went through was self-inflicted. There's no question about it. Just like a lot of what we go through is self-inflicted. No question about it. But the bottom line is this, is that they were the ones that God chose to bring through the Messiah, to bring Him through. And so we should appreciate that. So in order to pick up on that, you've got to get past the superficiality of it. And so we talked about a number of different things. We've gone through types and shadows, and we talked about the covenants and all of that kind of stuff. There's all sorts of different things. So now what we're going to do is we're going to hone in a little bit, and we're going to kind of go through this. I wouldn't say we're going to go through it book by book, because we're not. Some of them are going to get lumped together. But what we're going to do is, especially probably the first five books exactly, we're going to take one week each month, and we're just, or each month, each week, and we are going to go through it and just kind of see where is Christ in all of this. Because he can be found there. You just got to look for him. You got to know where to look. And so what it'll do is it gives you an appreciation for your Bible because it's a supernatural book. It was put together by the Holy Spirit. Men wrote it under the inspiration of Spirit. We cannot look at this as just some sort of religious text. Now, I know most of you in here say, I don't do that. But the truth is, we kind of do because we don't give it the respect that it deserves. Because the answers to life's problems are in this book. And we don't look at it like that. Where's the last place we turn when things get rough? It's usually the Bible. The first thing we do is we call somebody. Why? Because we need some sympathy. We want someone to feel bad for. Then we say, will you pray for us? As if we can't pray for ourselves. But we, we do that, and then the last place we look to is scriptures like, Lord, show me something. And we should be feeding daily off of this. Okay? So we're going to start in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. As always, I'll have these up on the screen. I encourage you to use your Bible if you got it. I know I talk fast. I'm hoping El Salvador worked on me a little bit. We're going to find out here momentarily. But it's good to look at these for yourself to make sure I'm not just making stuff up. And, just, and be able to underline stuff and write things. I mean, you should see my Bible. It has got notes all over the place. Sometimes I can't even read the notes that I wrote down, so I get to dig again. Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see Jesus here? On a superficial level, you do. God, God is Jesus, sure. We can see that, but there's steps beyond this. Now, some of what we're about to do is going to be a bit of a recap for some of you that have been here for a while and went through some of the other series that we've done because we're going to repeat this. But the question comes is, did Jesus play a part in the creation of the world? We would say yes, but we don't look at it that way a lot of times. We always think of God in the Old Testament as God the Father, and then, of course, where it mentions the Spirit, we know that's the Spirit. But very... You don't see Jesus mentioned specifically. You've got to dig and you've got to do some research to kind of find him in that. Now, there, we certainly know that he did. Why can we look at this and say, was the triune God involved in this? Well, it comes from the word God there. 
The word God there is Elohim in the Hebrew. The I am ending, when, in Hebrew, when you put an I am ending on something, it pluralizes it, and it doesn't pluralize it just in the meaning of two. It typically means three, can mean more. So when we see this, we see in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. That means that all three were responsible for that. All three played a part in that. Now you're like, I know this. Why are you telling me this? We're going to go somewhere here, and I want you to see something, because we cannot just assume, because we see one understanding of a word, that it means that every time. So I'm going to show you something that isn't too often taught, but I want you to pick up on this. And so one thing that we cannot do is we cannot just assume that Elohim, every time that that word is used, refers to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like we think. Let me show you an example. Flip over to Psalms chapter 82. Give you just a minute to get there. Look at me waiting for pages to be turned. I'm proud of myself. I'm doing good. Psalm 82. Verse 1. Now watch this. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. The first God there is exactly what you would expect. It is Elohim. The problem is, is the second word for gods there is also Elohim. Are you confused yet? Don't be. In two weeks, when I, when I talk about Acts chapter 2, I'm going to go into this a little deeper. But what you need to understand here is don't just always assume when you see something in Hebrew that it means that all the way throughout. How do we test that? How do we look at that? How do we know what the difference is? Context. Okay? So this is something called the divine counsel. And I'm going to talk about this in more detail on Wednesday night. And if you have questions, you can ask me. Because I don't want to get sidetracked with this. But what I want you to see is that don't always just assume that that word means what you think it means. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. What is the sons of God? Benai Elohim. It is the angels. It would be the other created being. Who, they were the mighty men of old. They were the men of valor in Genesis 6. That it talks about these, these angelic beings that were there. So he stands. He judges among the angels you could put it if you wanted to that's another way to say it okay so again don't just assume that every time this is just a little side piece but I want you to pick up on this because what happens too often is we assume when we get it down in one space it's that way all the way throughout that is not the case we have to be diligent and we have to be good students of the word so when we look at this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth we know that Jesus played a part in that how can we tell well, we know that the word God there, and it is in the context, we know that it is referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also the New Testament confirms this. In John chapter 1, and you don't need to flip to this one because you guys know it. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? We know it's Jesus because of verse 14 tells us that specifically. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when was the beginning? At the beginning, right? No confusion. We know where the beginning was. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here we see a confirmation of something that Jesus was involved in the beginning, right? No question. We understand that. This is not an aha moment for you. You're not like, ha, huh, it all comes together, right? I get it. But the point being here is we allow the Bible to interpret itself. The Old Testament and the New Testament, we combine them together. It's one book. 
Okay, man separated that page between Malachi and Matthew, you might as well rip that out. There is a, certainly a difference in the covenants, there's certainly a difference in some of the meanings, but if you go back and you study what Paul and Peter and all these guys, when they reference back to these Old Testament scriptures, you will begin to understand what was meant. Sometimes things that were there are a little murky, but they become clear in the New Testament. And so we know that Jesus was involved, we pick up on that, not a problem there. But let's look at Adam. What do we know about Adam? He was the first man that was created. Adam is a type of Christ, and we've discussed that a little bit. But how do we know that Adam was a type of Christ? Is this something that theologians just make up? Is this something that church people just say because they want to? No. Look at Romans chapter 5. I'm going to give you a second to flip there. Romans 5, we're going to look at verse 14. Romans 5 and verse 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Who is the him there? It's referring to Jesus. What just happened? The New Testament confirms something in the Old Testament. It is giving us a a picture, a, a light. It's shining a light on the whole canon of Scripture of what was going on. Now, how was Adam a type of Christ? So look at some of these comparisons, and I'm just going to read these for you. The first Adam turned from the Father in the garden. The last Adam turned to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. You have the Garden of Eden, you've got the Garden of Gethsemane. What you're going to see is a supernatural undoing of a lot of things that happens. You see that all the way throughout Um, the New Testament, that Jesus will, in one way or another, connect the dots and will undo something. It's just like when Peter sinned, what does he do? He he denied him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He, He undoes that. He does that three times. The second one, the first Adam was naked and unashamed in the garden. The last Adam was naked and he bore our shame on the cross. The next one, the first Adam's sin brought us thorns. The last Adam, he wore a crown of thorns. Now, I don't know if you've ever connected those two things together, but it is interesting. Why a crown of thorns? It's just interesting when you start thinking about this. Now, so I'm one that says there's nothing arbitrary in Scripture. Every number, every comma, everything is placed there for a reason. There may not be a huge significance in that, but yet it is interesting. The first Adam substituted himself for God. The last Adam was God substituting himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore our sins on a tree. The first Adam died as a sinner. The last Adam died for sinners. The first Adam lost the tree of life. The last Adam is the tree of life. The first Adam was the head of of the old creation. The last Adam is the head of the new creation. Who's the new creation? We are. The first Adam was created in God's image. The last Adam is God's image. The first Adam was to reign over all the earth. The last Adam will reign over all the earth forever. The first Adam died and returned to the ground. The last Adam died and he returned to heaven. He went into the ground and came out. The first Adam's side was open. 
the last Adam's side was pierced. Now let's talk about that for a second. What happened when God opened Adam's side? He brought out his wife. What happened when Christ's side was pierced? It's the bride. Here comes the church. You see, this supernatural undoing is taking place. You see it, and you see it all over the place. I mean, you see Jesus doing things that undo different things in the, the Old Testament, really. And so we read Romans 5 and verse 14, but let's, let's pick up the context of this and go a little further. Let's back up to verse 12, if you're still there. Romans 5, starting in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many." He's supernaturally undoing what took place in the beginning. It's amazing when you start tying these things together. So that's Adam. We looked at him in detail. But let's look at what happened. Let's look at the fall. You pick up on the fall in Genesis 3. Flip over there real quick. We're going to start in verse 8. We know what happened. God created a perfect world for them to live in. Gave them some directions. Said you can eat of every tree, but don't eat of this one. And so what do they do? that tree we're gonna start in verse 8 Genesis 3 and verse 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden this they've already eaten of the fruit okay when the Lord God called Adam and said to him where are you so he said I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat do you think God didn't know of course he knew then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Typical man. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What do we do? We mad immediately pass the buck. It's their fault. It's not my fault. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you should go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then Adam's, to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden and Eden until the ground, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What you just read here in Genesis 3 is the plan of redemption. God just told them exactly what's going to happen. This is where we see mankind fall. This is where they succumb to the temptation of the serpent. Adam didn't. He succumbed to the voice of his wife, who had succumbed to the voice of the serpent. It's separated there and it's significant. This is also where I believe, and I've talked about this before, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, where you see Satan fall. I don't believe he fell prior to this. I believe that this is the place that you see him fall. And I did a whole teaching on that back in, I think, July or something like that. And if you're interested in hearing that, I will gladly send it to you so you can hear it. But, but the bottom line is this, is that you see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, is that Satan mentioned, it talks about him being in the garden and the way it's worded, it is, it, it's almost as if it's prior to him falling. We have no other verse that talks about where Satan fell other than this part specifically. The reason we believe it could be something else is because we have been taught that it could be something else. I would want to just go with what Scripture says. And so that's my view on that. But what you see here happened. When they fell, what did they do? They hid themselves. They were ashamed. They recognized their nakedness for the first time because prior to this, they were clothed in the glory of God. They did not see themselves as such. They just, that was life. And so what did God do? He took skins from an animal and He made a covering for them. And He did this in spite of what they did. At this point, there was no sign of repentance. There was nothing there. It wasn't like an animal was sacrificed by them saying, God, I'm sorry. What did they do? They made excuses to God. But God laid out His plan here. God showed them that He would supply a covering for their sin. A righteous covering for their sin. And you see this throughout Scripture where clothing is used as an illustration of a righteousness in several places. Job 29, verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with joy. Jewels. Well, we see this, this illustration given here several different places. There's more than this. These are just a couple. But you get the idea that it's painting this picture. What did he say? He sells the serpent. He curses him. And he says, your seed and my seed are going to be head to head, right? Tells the man what's going to happen, what takes place. But he's laying out this pattern very early on. Sometimes we don't pick up on it. A quote by Charles Spurgeon says this, Adam went to the fig tree for his garments, and the fig leaves yielded him such covering as they could. But we come to Christ, and we find not fig leaves, but a robe of righteousness that is matchless for his beauty, comely in its proportions, and one which will never wear out, which exactly suits to cover our nakedness from head to foot, and when we put it on, makes us fair to look upon, even as Christ himself. It's powerful from Charles Spurgeon. When we come to Christ... It's the supernatural undoing of what Adam had done. We were no different. We, we sinned. We, we, we made mistakes. We have to come to Him for our covering. 
Who gave it to Adam? God did. What did Adam do to get it? He did nothing. What do we do to get salvation? We just come. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So how do we know that this whole thing was a part of God's plan from the beginning? Because you look at this, it's like, man, God, if you knew, if you knew that they were going to fall, why? Why would you create them? Why couldn't you come up with plan B, right? Scrap plan A. You know the beginning from the end. Why put us all through this? Look at 1 Peter 1. God knew what was going to take place. He did it anyway. 1 Peter 1. We're going to read verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in his last time for you, who through him believe in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We know that this was the plan from the beginning, he knew it, and Jesus was prepared to die before he ever created anything. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. Greater love than none of these things than a man who lays down his life for his friends. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for us. We see the plan of redemption through Jesus. We're in the first three chapters, and you could really dig this deeper. You could go a lot further than what we've just done, but this is just the, the beginning. Let's look at Genesis chapter 5. I want you to flip there because I want you to see it. This is something that many of us skip. Why do we skip it? Because it's a genealogy. Why do we care about genealogies? Really? We don't. We don't care. Because we, don't, we can't pronounce 90% of the names anyway. We don't know, we don't pick up on the connections and stuff, so we allow smarter people than us to go do all the homework. But there's something interesting when you look at these names that are here. Now, some of you have seen this before because I taught on this, oh, I don't know, a year ago or, or so, but inside of Genesis 5, we have these names of these people. And the problem that we have is that we don't have necessarily a translation of their name. We have a transliteration of their name, which means what the name means we apply the wording to it, and that's what we go with, and it has to do with the English language. But there's something unique in there when we look at what the names mean. Now, for us, a lot of us, we don't really know exactly what some of our names mean. We have some ideas, but some of that's been lost over time. But here, we can go back and we can trace this stuff. And it starts with the name of Adam, and his name means man. Makes sense. He was the first man. That seems pretty straightforward, right? His name means man. Now, a lot of these names are given to them based off of circumstances to their birth, or they could be somewhat prophetic because there were times that they knew what was going on prior to it happening. And then it says, Adam's son was named Seth, and his name means appointed. And he said, for God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew, which is in Genesis 4, Cain slew Abel, we know this. Seth's son was called Enosh. This one means mortal means frail or it means miserable. It comes from the root anash, which is, is to be incurable. It's used of a wound or a grief, sickness, something, some wickedness. And so it was in the days of Enosh that man began to defile the name of the living God. And you kind of see that a little further on with Genesis 6 and, and past. The next one is Kenan. This was Enosh's son, which can mean sorrow, it can mean dirge, it can mean elegy. We're not exactly sure because the pre precise denotation of this is, is, is we're not exactly 100% sure what it means, but some of these, um, a lot of what these study aids that you use, some of the, the um, 
oh, I can't think of the name of them now, but these books and stuff that I go through, they'll talk about, they, they mix up Kenan and make it synonymous with Canaan, and it, that's not the case. If you read that, that's not correct. Um, but you get from Kenan, and then you get to Mahalalel. I think I said that right. That was his son. Mahalalel means blessed or praised. So Mahalal means blessed or praised. El is the name for God, and you can see that when you, when you put this together. So basically, when you put these two things together, you see it's the blessed God. Anytime you see that El at the end, it's the name of God, like Daniel, which means God is my judge. Okay? So Mahalalel is the blessed God. Mahalalel's son's name was Jared. It comes from the verb yarad, Y-A-R-A-D-H, and it means shall come down. Jared's son's name was Enoch. Now, Enoch should be someone you're familiar with. It means teaching or commencement. He was the first of four generations of preacher. And in fact, he's got the earliest recorded prophecy was, was by Enoch. And it deals with the second coming of Christ. It's actually in the book of Jude where you see this. And it says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against. That's Jude verse 14 and 15. But that was one of the early fathers. Why? Because he was one of the early fathers. Now Enoch was never taken, or never died. He was taken. He was raptured, if you will. You know, sometimes we don't like to use that language, but, but that's basically what happened. He was taken. He never saw death. But Enoch's son's name was Methuselah. And so Enoch walked after God, and he begat Methuselah. He received some prophecy, we believe, of this flood that was coming, of, of this, this judgment that God was going to bring. And he was told that as long as his son was alive, that the judgment of the flood would be withheld. And so it was the year that Methuselah died that the flood came. Interesting how those things are put together. You could kind of imagine that if you knew that was the case and you knew that was coming, every time Methuselah had a cold, you'd be like, oh, Lord, not today. No, no, you know, get that guy some cyanide or something. I don't know. But Methuselah had a son, and his name was Lamech. And so we don't exactly have the root in our English word, but basically Lamech is one that's pretty obvious. Lament or lamentation is where our English words come from this. Is, is Lamech suggests despairing. And so it's also linked that Lamech and Cain's line, who inadvertently killed the son Tubal, uh, in a hunting incident. So it's just some of these things. But the last one on this list is Noah. He's, Lamech is the father of Noah, and, and Noah comes from Nakam, which means to bring relief or comfort. Relief or comfort. Now, again, we go through all of this stuff, but it's when we start putting this stuff together. Adam means man. Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrowed, Mahalalel means the blessed God, Jared means shall come down, Enoch teaching, Methuselah his death shall bring, Lamech the despairing, Noah rest or comfort. But what if we put these into a sentence? This is how it would read. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Now that's interesting to me. You have the gospel message hidden in the genealogy of Genesis 5, and you'll never convince me, one, that this was an accident. 
You'll never convince me, too, that a bunch of Jewish rabbis conspired to hide the Christian gospel inside of Genesis 5. Because this is part of the Torah, which is very precious to them. And it's just amazing when you begin to look and see, okay, wow, this is fascinating. Could it be a coincidence? Sure, it could be a coincidence. I just don't believe that it is. Again, what is God doing? He's, he's all the way through. I'm not going into this today, but there's actually a teaching about the names of some of the stars and the, and the meaning, and you can actually find the gospel inside the, the names of the stars of how they, and what they believe is that Adam named these constellations and taught this, and that is how that message was passed along. And, and it's, again, I don't have time to go into all of that stuff, but it's very fascinating. Could be a coincidence, could be somebody contrived it and made it up because it's interesting. I don't know, but it is just definitely fascinating. So again, Genesis 5, what do we see? We see the message of the gospel all the way throughout. Well, what about Noah? Noah is not specifically identified in the New, Ty- New Testament as, as a type of Christ. You're not going to see anything that, that, he, that is tying him back and saying Noah was a type of Christ like we saw before. But what you'll see is a lot of things that he does and, and says points to a foreshadowing of our redemption of what's coming. It was said that Noah was perfect in his generations and that he walked with God. We're in Genesis 6 now, okay? This is the story of the flood. This is about to come. It says, when the sons of God came down and and with the daughters of men and they created a race called the Nephilim, which just means giants. And so they, uh, God sees that there's wickedness in their heart. He regrets that he ever made man. He says, I'm going to have to do something. But God saw favor. And it says that Noah was perfect in his generations and that he walked with God. Now, those are two different statements that we often, oftentimes squish into one. But when we see the, the sons of God, which is, again, in Hebrew, it's the Benai Elohim. You see this in several places. Came down. They took from themselves these wives. They had children. These were the Nephilim. These were the mighty men of old. And, and a lot of it, if you study Greek mythology, you can tie this back to Genesis 6 of the things that they were seeing. And you also see Jude refer to this event as well as if you ever read the book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch is not canonical. It is not inspired. We don't know that Enoch wrote it. In fact, it's very likely that he did not. It also has nothing prophetic inside of it. All the the, the stipulations that were laid out in order for something to be canonical. But it is definitely a historical writing, and it is a fascinating read. But you see this thing going on. And then Noah also walked with God, which was different than the rest of mankind. In other words, he was committed to the Lord, and all these other people were not. It says that their hearts were evil continually, but Noah found grace. Why did he find grace? What was it about Noah that caused him to find grace? Ultimately, and Leslie talked about this this morning, he feared God. Not feared like I'm afraid of him, don't smite me, but feared as this reverential fear. He walked with God. It says he was perfect in his generations, which is referring to his bloodline. Had nothing to do with this whole Nephilim where the angels sinned and all this other stuff. But that he feared God. He walked with the Lord. And you see this in John 1 and verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now look at that. I'm going to read it one more time. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where did grace and truth come from? Jesus Christ. But Noah found grace. Prior to this, this shows us something. Grace was given to those who walked with the Lord. But it was always through Jesus. 
It was prior to this age of grace that came after the incarnation of Jesus, after Jesus died on the cross, that grace could be given. You can find grace all the way throughout the Old Testament. And, and it was accounted to them righteousness because they feared the Lord. They were walking in His statutes and all of that. You, again, we just assume we, we've got a, an Old Testament book where God's angry, and we've got a New Testament book where God is love. No, God was always love. You've got the Old Testament that covers thousands of years, and a lot of things get squished together. You've got the New Testament, which covers, let's just call it 100 years, but it, it probably wasn't all that much time. You know, so you've got a lot of things that are a lot more shortly put together. But the God of grace is the God of the Old Testament, just like He is the New Testament. It was about the things that were to come. In order to be right with God, you walked in the fear of the Lord, and you did what He told you to do. The commandments were not given at this point. So there was no commandments for Him to follow, but He walked in the fear of the Lord. The grace that comes through Jesus was applicable, applicable back in the Old Testament. And so you see this here, but you see the Noah, uh, with Noah and you see the grace and that he was walking with God. With the ark, you have this picture of judgment, but you also have this picture of grace. How come? Judgment's obvious, right? The floods came, their hearts were wicked continually. He judged the world, all of that. But the grace was found that God removed Noah and gave him protection, protected him through what was going on. Judgment was coming upon the world. His grace would separate all those who walked with him, walked with God. This warning was given because there was time. They had 120 years, roughly, between the time that God gave the command that this is going to happen and the time that the flood actually came, gave them plenty of time to repent. They didn't. It wasn't like, you know, here's a guy building a boat in a place that there's never been rain before. And so you would think somebody come up to him and say, hey, what are you doing? I'm sure they did. Because you've got to remember, Noah built the ark. He didn't have a lumber yard. He couldn't run to Menards and pick up nails and two-by-fours and all that stuff. They had to cut the trees. They had to mill the wood. They had to do all that stuff. This wasn't something that he just kind of threw together. It took a lot of work and it took a lot of time. But it's the time of the judgment when it comes it's something fascinating that you see in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. And I want you to flip there real quick. Because this jumped off to the page of me a couple of years ago. And I always found this interesting. I never looked at it this way. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. What did he say? He said, Come into the ark. In order to say, come into the ark, what does that imply? God's in the ark. God's, Noah, come into myself, because I have seen that you are righteous, and I will protect you. Find that interesting. I don't know if you guys do. Maybe I'm, I'm just overly excited and easily excited. I don't know. You see, God was with him the entire time. During this time. He says, come into the ark. It's actually God who shut the door. There's a slight difference in the language and how we, we look at these things, but he, when he tells them to go out of the ark, in, in, in verse, oh, I didn't actually put that in there. Okay, and, and, and when he comes off with everything, he says, now I want you to go out of the ark. He said, come in, now go out. Where was he? He was still in the ark. He was still there. It's, it's amazing when you put these in, because where was God? He was with Noah the entire time. He said, come into myself where I am. And then in verse 16, it says, so those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded with him, and the Lord shut him in. Who closed the door? Who protected them the entire time? God did. 
They came into where God was. God shut the door and sealed them in. They were protected from the judgment. Why? Because they were found righteous. You guys picking up on the, on the pieces here? You seeing how this is all, all coming to together? Now, where does this have to do with Christ? Look at John chapter 10 and verse 9. I get easily excited by this stuff, sorry. John chapter 10 and verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, are they making a connection back to Genesis 7? No, they're not. But can we? You bet we can. What happened? They had to enter through the door where God was. Because they had a right to be there because God saw that they were righteous. He said, you come in here, you'll be protected. I will seal the door. Jesus said that I am the door and anybody who enters into me will go in and they will find pasture and they will be protected. He said that we will be sealed by the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting how those two things just happen to correlate so well. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. You got the story of Noah, you got judgment coming, the Lord prepares a way of escape for those who are following Him, and there's one way in, it's through the door to where He is, and He controls it, but they can find safety in His presence, just like we can. It's exciting. Skipping ahead to the next part. You guys aren't as enthusiastic about this as I am. I get excited by this stuff, because again, we see the plan of redemption all the way through. Okay, how are we doing on time? Okay, I'm going to talk a little faster. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. Y'all don't have anywhere to be. But you get, you get ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. In chapter 10, they call this the table of nations. You'll see several nations that are, very, that are listed there. I believe there's 70 of them, if I recall. In chapter 11, you get the Tower of Babel. This is where the Lord had confused their language because they didn't obey and they were, they were told to separate and fill the earth. But basically, they came together and they deliberately disobeyed God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they, had, then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now this may not appear to much, really, when you look at the, the, the surface of it, but it's very significantly, it's significant because immediately following this, God separates the nation, he calls out one person to be, and that's Abram, to be his portion. It's, he's dividing the nations here. But the nations were told to divide themselves after Noah landed, right? He said, I want you to spread out and fill the whole earth. What do they do? They're deliberately going against this. They say, come, let us make bricks, and we're going to make a city for ourselves, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And what does it say? Let us make a name for ourselves, let's make ourselves significant, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which is what God told them to do initially. So they're deliberately being disobedient. You can, it reeks of pride, no question about it. There's obviously more to it than what we're just talking about, but I want you to pick up on something. is that God separated the nations, and He put control of those nations over the, with the sons of God, the Benai Elohim. You pick this up in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I'm going to ask you to flip there real quick. Because I want you to see this. Now, what, what I'm sharing with you, and again, when we 
talk about Acts 2, I'm going to go into more detail on that on Wednesday night. So if you don't make it, I would definitely encourage you to at least try to come or at least listen to it afterwards because I'll explain this in more detail there. Because in Acts 2, you have the supernatural undoing of Genesis 11, okay, with the Tower of Babel and the division of the languages and all of that. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 8, says, When the Most High, it's referring to God, gave to the nations their inheritance, and when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, right there, your version of the Bible may say the sons of Adam. The New King James says it. This is the ESV that I'm reading you because the New King James is incorrect there. It is the Benai Elohim. Why do they do this? Because when you talk about dividing the nations by the sons of God, they're trying to help us out because who are the sons of God? There's a view that in Genesis 6, the sons of God are the sons of Seth. There's no biblical precedence for that. But when you talk about angels and and some of the stuff that went on, that's just weird. That doesn't make any sense. So they try to help out. It is the sons of God. So he divided and fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. You could say the angels or the watchers, as it said other places. Verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So Israel was God's inheritance, his portion. So he divided the land in Genesis 11, because where did he divide the land? That's where he did it, right? That's how we can tie this back to this. He divided the land, and he took for himself with Abram, his portion, which would be Israel. We know this. The other ones were out there. He put the sons of God over them to, to, to drive worship back to him. What was Israel? It was a, to be a nation of priests through the whom the whole world would worship God. And ultimately, the Messiah would come through this, this nation. But they didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do. Right? We know that because we've, we've read this before and we've studied this out. It was these sons of God that you see later on who don't do what they're supposed to. They try to, um, they tempt the Israel to follow other gods and all this other stuff. They were supposed to be pointing everybody back to God. What was significant about Israel? They were supposed to be blessed by God because of their obedience to God, showing that there is one God and one God only. Okay? So people from all over in, in, had gathered together, and when you study this out in depth, you'll notice that this table of nations is the heartbeat of the missionary journeys that were taken by the apostles that bring salvation to all the world. It, Abraham and, and Israel was God's portion because the Bible says through him all nations will be blessed. So the Gentile nations were what separated from Israel initially. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish you have begun in the Spirit, you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying and you all the nations shall be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham so when we get to Genesis 12 when talking about all the nations of the world be blessed through you what's this talking about well Galatians clears this up we've got a New Testament verse that clears up an Old Testament passage again 
But the bottom line is this. You see the separation. God takes Israel for his portion through Abram, and then all the nations come together. Ultimately, his plan of redemption was to bring mankind back to himself in a way that he could do it. But it took a long time. And this is what you see in Acts chapter 2. When they all come together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're praying in tongues, the tongues of fire. This was a time of the Passover or not the Passover, but Pentecost, where um, all the nations, this was one of the, the feasts where they were required to come back to Jerusalem. And so you've got all these other people. It says the Galileans were there. Galileans were not smart folk. They were what we would call country bumpkins. And so they hear them speaking of the wonders of God in all of these languages, like how is this possible? What is going on? This is supernaturally undoing what took place in Genesis chapter 11. But the bottom line here is God is laying out his plan. And we see it from there on out. We see it with the rest of, of, of what takes place, especially in the book of Genesis. Through Abram, all the world will be blessed. All the world will be pointed to God. It was through him. This was the plan from the beginning. Nothing surprised God. But you can see here in the first 11 chapters, even 12 if you want to go into there, just time after time. And these are just a few. There's more than this. We don't have time to go in through all of them. I'm going to skip ahead and talk about Joseph just for a minute, but I'm just going to kind of go through this fairly quickly to show you the comparison of Joseph and Jesus. Just to give you one more the thing, but remember, we have a supernatural book. This thing's incredible. So look at some of the comparison. First of all, Joseph, he was born by supernatural action because Rachel was unable to conceive and God jumped in. You see that in Genesis 30, verse 22 and 24, through 24. He was especially loved by his father. You see that in chapter 37 and verse 3. He was mistreated by his brothers, verse 4. He was in constant turmoil, and he was rejected as a ruler over his brothers. See that in verse 8. His robe was taken away from him. See that in verse 23. He was conspired against by those who wanted to kill him. See that in verse 18. But he was rescued from prison and rules and reigns, just like Christ was resurrected from death. That's chapter 41, 39 through 41. He was sold for silver. That's verse 28. Chapter 37, verse 28. He becomes a servant in chapter 39, verse 4. He is condemned despite being innocent. You see that in chapter 39, 11 through 20. Later, he was received by his brothers and exalted as a savior and a deliverer in chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. He uplifts his brothers to places of honor and safety, chapter 45, verses 16 through 18. And you can, I mean, you pick up on the nuances there of how Jesus and, the, and, and Joseph were just some of the stuff that was taking place. Jesus went through the same thing. But when you look at the parallels that come through this, that you pick up in the New Testament, it's, it's really interesting. In, in Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So humble beginnings brought through. Did, did Joseph have a rough time and a rough go? Absolutely he did. But it says God was with him and he rescued him out. But there was a plan and there was a timeline for everything that took place. But in Luke chapter 2, in verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. And you, it, again, we're just looking at some parallels here. It's all we're doing. But, but again, what, what happened with Joseph? Same thing. God was with him, brought him out, found favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, and he made him ruler over Egypt and all of the household. 
Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Just talking about when he was young and in favor with God and man. And what happens? Ultimately, he goes through a whole bunch of stuff. But what happens? He's ruler over all things. He's seated at the right hand of God. He'll sit on a throne on this earth, well, the new earth, and he will rule and reign forever with God. You see how powerful the gospel message is? You see how powerful it is when you can go to the Old Testament? And we really only looked at, at the first 11 chapters, and we didn't really look at them that closely. And see, my goodness, the gospel message of the salvation, Jesus Christ, is, is on every page. That's just Genesis. Wait till we get to Exodus. It's exciting. God is good, amen? He's given us a book that we can depend on, that we can lean on, that we can trust. These are not just here for no reason. Because what happens is we begin to doubt. We begin to doubt our faith. We begin to doubt the things that God says in His Word. We can believe salvation without a problem. Why? Because we're not faced with eternity every day. But when we're sick, we doubt. When we're hurting, we're doubt. When something happens in our life, we begin to doubt. Why? Because we don't trust this Word. But man, if you can look at something in the New Testament and you can find it all the way back in the very beginning and say, how on earth did they do this? This is something more. It should encourage your faith. It should build your faith that God is exactly what He said He is, that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that what He says in His Word, we can believe without a doubt. Amen?